good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jay Kettle, and of course, joining me as always is co-host and founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you, Jake? Not too bad. It's uh, Saturday, May 25th, 5 p.m. here on the East Coast, and tonight we have a KMO from the Sea Realm and Psychonautica with us today. And uh, Hey, hey. How are you this evening, KMO? I'm doing just great. Thanks. So... Why don't we start off at the top of the show by talking about how did you come to podcasting? Because podcasting is a really interesting industry that has a lot of different people in it that come from a lot of different backgrounds and that got involved in it in, you know, a variety of different ways. So how did you come to podcasting and how did you come to um, discuss the topics that you discuss on your shows? Well, I don't remember exactly where I first encountered the term, but I was podcasting within a couple months of first having heard the word podcast. And there were three shows that inspired me and that just made me realize, hey, this is something I can do. And those were the Dopecast, and that's now a network, and it's the network for which I do Psychonautica, the Psychedelic Salon, and the Viking Youth Power Hour. And when I heard the topics that those guys were talking about and the the production quality that was possible with uh, some fairly reasonable equipment, I knew that's what I had to do, and I got right on it. And what year was that? That was 2006. So okay, you've been in so the game for a while now. Yep, seven years. Yeah, I was looking at Sea Realm, and you're up in the 300 count for your episodes there. I yes. don't know what the last one was, but it's 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 a healthy amount. 362. Right. And so, um, what what is the Sea Realm? How did you coin the term Sea Realm, and, well, and decide that that was that was the brand that you were going to podcast with? I, when I was in grad school in the 90s, I did a comic strip for a university newspaper, and the comic strip was called C, just the letter C. And I had come to that uh, when I was taking, I was in a, a grad student in philosophy, and I was taking a course in Hegel, and I was reading the Phenomenology right of Spirit. And the translation that I had, the word Geist, you know, the spirit of the time, Zeitgeist, was translated as consciousness. And I had to write the word consciousness in my notes so many times that I just came to abbreviate it as the letter C. And I thought, oh, that'd be a neat name for a comic strip. And so I did the comic strip for a while, and then I tried to make it a web comic strip. And I'd had the Sea Realm domain since, I think, 95, maybe 96. So when it came time to do a podcast, there was never any question as to what it would be called. It was going to be the Sea Realm podcast. And the top topics would be just whatever was of interest to me. And what was of interest to me was psychedelics and how crappy the drug war is, and what a bad idea it is. And I was really excited about the notion of a technological singularity at the time. So those, the top, those were the topics I wanted to talk about, but I couldn't get any of the brand-name singularitarians to talk to me. I did a few episodes about how awful the drug war is, and then I realized that if anybody is still listening who thinks that the drug war is a good idea, I don't really want to make media for them. So that topic kind of went by the wayside. Right, you were and, preaching to the choir. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. pretty much. Who, I mean, who thinks the good, the drug war is a good thing? I mean, really, nobody. At this point, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty failed, it's a pretty failed policy. So yeah, and I mean, uh, it's it, not not only is it a failed policy, but it's a disastrous policy. And I mean, I think that if that if people focused more towards uh, the side of the issue where farmers in the third world are being pushed into abject poverty to farm things like cocaine. Um, yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, it's, I mean, a, it's a very it's weird very industry. But we can. So there was the drug war thing. There was the singularity thing, and there was the psychedelics thing. How did how did you get introduced to psychedelics? Like at what age was it? Like a college age <laughs> introduction or grad school or? No, no, it was before that. It was oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> very good. It was yeah after high school, but before college. Actually, in in high school, I, I hated school and I didn't want to go to college, and I joined the Marine Corps. Ooh. And I was in delayed entry for a long time, so long that I got bored and I just started taking courses at a community college, not even thinking that I would finish the semester. I was just sort of, you know, filling my time. And I only took things that interested me. So I took a bunch of art courses, I took an art history course, and I took intro to philosophy. And it just didn't work out with the Marine Corps, but by the end of that first semester, uh, and time when I was taking a lot of acid and mushrooms and such, uh, at the end of the semester, I had a 4.0 grade point average, and I thought, oh, well, that's wow. not so hard. So I, okay, I got on so, an academic track. So when you were introduced to psychedelics, were were you into any psychedelic literature like McKenna or Tim Leary, or were you just kind of going into it blind? Pretty blind, actually. 
And, you know, was, and and what was your initial takeaway? I mean, going into it blind, usually people go into it with a, with a lot of very different preconceptions, but going into it blind, what was your takeaway from from your first powerful experience? What did you was it a spiritual takeaway? Was it more of a mystery? Was it more of a what the heck was that or I mean, <laughs> well, how did you how did you frame it in your mind afterward? You know, I I don't exactly remember, but at about the same time that I first experienced acid, I was also getting into a very new age sort of meditation spirituality. Mm. Uh, I was doing creative visualization and reciting aphorisms and just doing a lot of um, a lot of sort of interior work. I was very interested in my dreams at the time, keeping a dream journal. So that all sort of flowed together, and I guess. What sort of informed my, my psychedelic spirituality was science fiction literature, like uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, well, That's there you go. That, that came, so that makes more sense to me now. So you were into kind of um, exploring consciousness and spirituality, but you hadn't really come to any conclusions about anything yet. You were just sort of dabbling. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and, and you, you got interested in the psychedelics, and right away did it become like, like something that you were really into and you had to learn about, or was it sort of a slow process? Well, it was immediately something I was really into, for sure. Mm-hmm. In terms of learning about it, I mean, this was the mid-80s, and I was living in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, <laughs> You know, I've heard other people coming out of the Kansas City area that found some pretty strong acid back there, back there at that time. And I don't, know what that strong, Midwest, yeah. I don't know what the Midwest connection was back then, but there was something going on that, back then. So you had some strong acid in Kansas back in there in the mid-80s. And there wasn't a lot of literature for you to to investigate. So where where did you go? Well, I, I hate to be a, a Kansas City sort of provincialist, but I was in Missouri. It was Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, sorry. And no, no worries, no worries. It's really hard to remember. <laughs> that was a while ago, and a lot of sources have come to me since. It wasn't until like Mondo 2000 magazine that I ever heard of um, of Terence McKenna. I had read the Robert Anton Wilson Illuminatus trilogy, just as. Mm-hmm. My- in my, my sci-fi adventures, but I don't really remember that being such a big influence until later, like maybe in the 90s I really got into uh, to Robert Anton Wilson. So, I don't know, it's, I haven't cast my mind back to those days in a while. So okay. let's, jump, let's jump back to the idea of the, uh, the singularity. Now, when did, when did the idea of the singularity come to you, and how did that overlap with, with your, uh, your exploration of psychedelics? I was really into the notion of the singularity for years before I knew that word. I had encountered a book uh, just in a university bookstore, and I, th- I think it was called The Tomorrow Makers. And it was a bunch of interviews with people that are you know, quite famous in singularity circles now, but I'd never heard of them at the time. People like Hans Moravec and uh, Eric Drexler, um, Rodney Brooks. These kinds of folks. And the word singularity didn't appear in that book, but I was certainly primed for it. I had also been reading um, um, a book about a guy who is basically a, a rationalist empiricist, and he started investigating the possibility of viola- or immortality through machine upload, and then he became a, a Christian, thinking that immortality was assured. And that What is the name of that book? Ugh, it'll that sounds like something I'd want to read, though. Yeah, the, the title will come to me in a minute. But also, you know, just from reading science fiction, I had read Blood Music by uh, Greg Bear, which is very much a sort of biological singularity. And uh, Heart of the Comet by David Brin and Gregory Benford had singularitarian elements to it. So by the time I actually heard the word, I, I you know, was fully invested in the, the whole notion. All right, and so you heard about uh, Terrence McKenna from Mondo 2000. We're going to be interviewing Are You Serious next week. Um, All right, on. Uh, what were your other your other influences there in the early 90s? Mostly, I would say, science fiction, comic books. You know, I was studying philosophy, philosophy of mind, uh, studying Buddhism as well, and other Eastern European uh, traditions. I, I lived in Japan when I was uh, an undergrad. And then I went back after I graduated, but before I went to grad school. So I had some, some interesting psychedelic experiences in Japan, actually. But uh, uh, those, those are my influences, I think, at so, the time. Uh, I, actually, uh, if we could talk about the psychedelic experiences in Japan um, in a minute, that would be interesting. But what I, what I want to go back to is you said that you did some Eastern European studies. Um, what, that was uh, a slip of the tongue. I meant East Asian. Oh, East Asian. Okay. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, 
while you were in Japan, what type of experience? Uh, well, first of all, uh, were you in Japan as a as an exchange student for undergrad? I was. Yeah. And uh, what were your experiences in Japan? Um, <laughs> and in what context did they take place? Well, uh, it's it's very easy to send a tab of acid through the mail, and so I had friends <laughs> send me a lot. You know, we couldn't get any weed. It was uh, we were out in the countryside in Japan, and it was you know it's it's a real dangerous thing to try to mail it. So uh, sending sending acid was a lot safer, and so that's that was my drug of choice after alcohol, which is pr- pretty hard to get away from in Japan. Okay. I was out in the the countryside in Japan, uh, mm-hmm. up in the the northern. The northern part of that main island. Oh, and then, oh I see. Okay. Yeah, I was not in a, a metropolitan area. Hmm. And what 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 kind of uh what kind of comic books were you into? Well, when I was first getting into comic books, I was into superhero stuff. You know, reading the X Men and whatnot. But then uh, in the eighties, Marvel Comics under editor Archie Goodwin, they did this experiment. It was called Epic Comics. You know, they had their magazine, Epic Magazine, which is sort of an answer to heavy metal, but then they had a whole line of comics which were uh, creator-owned. So mm-hmm. back in those days, if you were drawing the X-Men or, you know, Daredevil or whatever, you didn't own that. You were just playing with somebody else's intellectual property. You were hired. But they had this brief experiment where they they basically got uh, underground cartoonists and Guys who are, you know, giants in the field who. So which of, shopping. which of the creator co- owned comics were you more, most drawn to? I mean, which were, which were the ones that you, you found the most interesting? Well, ultimately the one that was the most impactful on me was Cerebus. And who was doing that one? Dave Sim. That wasn't with Epic. Uh, Dave Sim was totally on his own. He is the, the sort of patron saint of, of creator owned comics and self publishing. But he's also uh, much reviled now because he went through a really ugly divorce and got really ideological and, and sort of misogynistic in the process. So he, he's a fallen saint. But Cerebus was the one that you that you found. Um, was it like psychedelic at all, or was it just Cerebus weird? is very psychedelic. <laughs> and, and Dave Sim makes no bones about the fact that you know a lot of it was drug inspired. Right, and there's a lot of uh, cartoonists or comic book artists out there that that have been inspired or have at one time been very heavy uh, drug users. I can think of uh, Alan Moore and um, Grant Morrison, and have uh, publicly, you know, said that yeah. they were inspired by by taking drugs. Have you gotten uh, many any comic book artists to come on the Sea Realm and talk about any of that? You know, I haven't asked any. Um, oh, I really? <laughs> I would absolutely love to talk to Alan Moore, but I, I have not. Uh, I have not actually extended the invitation yet. Oh man, yeah, I know he would probably be a really hard interview to get, and who knows what kind of an interview you could get from him? I mean, he might just be all like one-word answers. No. Yes. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> sort of. Possibly. Yeah. So oh, yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to talk to Grant Morris, Grant Morrison, and. Um, Oh, uh, quite a few others. I mean, there's been a lot of them. Uh, Neil Gaiman, who did the Sandman series, I was a big fan of that. Uh, it's also very inspired by psychedelic or uh, semi-psychedelic ex- exploration. What were you doing before you you were doing the C comic book? But was there a was there a stretch of time in between the comic book and the podcast where you were where you weren't really doing anything in the public eye? Yes, yes, there was. Um, Oh, it's, it's a horrible, ugly tale, but basically in 98, I quit my job at Amazon.com. I cashed in my stock options. I got a big chunk of money and I did, I did all right with it for a while. You know, I went and I, I studied a lot of uh, public speaking and leadership and I took NLP courses and I also, I spent a lot of time at the drawing board and I was drawing, drawing, drawing. But well, let's then, let's back up and talk about the NLP courses because okay. I've studied NLP a little bit and I still don't know exactly where I fall on the whole NLP. That's neuro linguistic programming. It's a. Uh, can you explain? I mean, explain it to me, like what you were doing, the coursework that you were doing in NLP, and what you what you brought out of that. Well, I got into it because a friend of mine convinced me to fly to L.A. and do a weekend seminar with Ross Jeffries, a name I'm, I imagine you know. Mm-hmm. So that was my introduction, and in that seminar, uh, Ross recommended Rex Sykes, and Rex is in the Midwest somewhere. I think he's in 
Michigan maybe or Wisconsin, but the northern part of the Midwest. And I flew out and I did an in-residence shop or workshop with him that was about a week and a half long, I think. It was a, a really long, sort of intense program. And that was after I had left Amazon. I still had a lot of money to work with and um, I could do whatever I want. And that's the sort of thing that was was of interest to me at the time. But then I got married, I had a couple kids, I ran out of money, and I had to start working again. And I had been out of the, the labor force for nearly a decade. I didn't know anybody. I was living in Arkansas by that time. Hmm. Uh, there wasn't much of an economy, and I got into selling insurance. Wow. Yeah, it was ugly. It was not for me at all. It was a bad, bad time in my life. So that's but, a step down from working at Amazon.com. Well... Certainly. Which, by the way, if you go to our website, you can click through the banner and go straight to Amazon.com and do all of your shopping there. And yes. we get a little bit of the kickback. So thanks a lot for mentioning one of our affiliates. <laughs> yes, we appreciate <laughs> it, KMO. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, uh, so selling insurance, how long did that last? That lasted, oh, I guess about three years. But I was still trying to do it as I was doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I got enough of an audience going. Then I was, I was taking donations that, um, in 2007 and 2008, I went to Peru to, um, to go to the An- International Amazonian Shamanism Conference that Alan Shoemaker puts on there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm familiar with yeah, that. And the, uh, the listeners, you know, a few, uh, a select few very generous listeners paid my way. So, I wasn't making enough money to really maintain my lifestyle, but I had people willing to fly me to South America, which was not a very good move thinking back on it if I wanted to, say, prioritize maintaining my marriage. But, I um, see. Yeah. So flying to Peru was, was that kind of a, was that like a, a, a dream of yours or like some, some, some like a, like a, like something on a wish list that you wanted to fulfill is I want to go to Peru and do ayahuasca with the shaman or was it something that just sort of landed in your lap and you said, Oh, I'll do that. Well, kind of which, which way did it fall? Well, I had done it before back when I had a bunch of money from Amazon. That was the first oh, thing I, I did was jump oh, on a plane okay. and fly to South America. Yeah. And who, who did you go and, uh, and, and work with down there? The first time was with, uh, Luis Eduardo Luna. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, great, great. Yeah, yeah. I'm very familiar with his work. Uh, that's lucky that you got to you got to study with him. Yeah, and then the second time I went down, I stayed at Alan Shoemaker's house for about a month. That was in 2000, and then it wasn't. It was 2007 before I got back there again. And that was for the conference. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was around that time that. Probably you should have been staying home, patching things up <laughs> instead of if, flying off to Peru. If I was going to be a successful insurance salesman and uh, remain married to the woman I was married to at that time, yes, it would have been better to to stay home and buckle down and give up this silly podcasting thing. But you stuck with it. And, I did. Uh, and now, in retrospect, how do you how do you feel about the whole thing? Have things worked out with you and your ex wife? Are you on a friendly friendly terms now? We are not. Oh, I'm sorry. To <laughs> no, it's ugly. <sighs> That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. so, but you're in, you're in Brooklyn now. I am. And and where's the rest of your family? Where's your your ex wife and children? They're in Maryland. Oh, so, so you don't get to see them as often as you would like. I I assume. No, it's it's a three hour drive. So I I get to see the kids about once every six weeks. I drive there, pick them up, and drive them back here. Now, when you started podcasting, you weren't in Brooklyn. You were doing it from Arkansas. Sounds like you moved around a little bit, but you were in Arkansas when you started it. Now, yes. Yeah. So, and then, and then you were you were well into the podcast. You had an audience. You probably could have gone anywhere where there was any kind of hub. Why? Yeah. Why Brooklyn? What was what would draw you to Brooklyn? Well, there's there's a bit of story that's between Arkansas and Brooklyn. Um, I moved with my wife and kids to Maryland to be near her family. And uh, I actually got a straight job. I, I worked a cubicle there for Comcast doing phone tech support for over a year while maintaining the podcast. But shortly after we got there, she took the kids and left. And turns out she already had somebody else, you know, kind of lined up. And so I, I did the um, 
I actually took advantage of the fact that I had health insurance through Comcast to get some nasal polyps removed because they were ruining my voice. I always sounded like I had a cold. Hmm. And then once that was done and I absolutely hated the gig at Comcast, I just quit and I went on a couch surfing book tour. It wasn't a book tour. I didn't have a book at the time. Just a, a couch surfing tour with Neil Kramer, who is a guy who's been on my show on many occasions. And while I was on that tour with no clue as to what I would do at the end of that tour, I got an email from Albert Bates, who runs the Eco Village Training Center at a former hippie commune in Tennessee called The Farm. Right. And so I went there and I worked at the Eco Village Training Center as basically podcaster in residence. It was just a total sort of life preserver thrown to me by Albert. Uh, and I got to carry on my, my lifestyle there. And then my current girlfriend was a listener to the podcast and... Uh, that's how we met was through the podcast. And when we finally met in person, we just really clicked and we were both going to, she was going to sell her place here in Brooklyn and move to Tennessee. And we both realized that that wasn't going to work. You know, we had planned to build this cabin in the woods and I'm really a word guy. You know, I write, I draw pictures, I do a podcast, building a cabin in the woods, probably more than I could pull off. And so <laughs> it was a last well, minute change you know your limits. Yeah. Last-minute change of plans, and I moved to Brooklyn rather than her moving to Tennessee. So here I am in Brooklyn. So there is hope for men in podcasting, single men in podcasting, <laughs> to find uh, to find love. Then is that right? There is. Okay, yes. good, good. All right. Well, well, that that'll give some people the inspiration to stick with it. I'm sure. <laughs> That's actually interesting. Um, that uh, you met through the podcast. Yeah, it worked out. So uh, how was the uh, the conference in Peru? Oh, it was great. Absolutely great. In 2007, I met a guy named Matt Waterston, who runs an outfit called the Temple of the Way of the Light, which mm -hmm. sounds yes. hokey, sounds hokey in English, but it sounds great in Spanish. And so in 2008, before the conference, I arranged to have a bunch of Sea Realm listeners join me for a week long retreat at that retreat center. So we did that, you know, drinking ayahuasca every other night for a week before the start of the conference. And that was just astounding. Now, did everybody there have, have good experiences and, and everything was well managed and uh, no freakouts or any strangeness? <laughs> there was one guy there who was there with his ex-girlfriend and they had just recently broken up and she was trying to be really, um, I guess, really generous and just end things on a good term. And she basically paid his way to come along on this thing. And he was a total grouch and a real buzzkill. Oh, but. Yeah. Aside from him, everything was great. It was really excellent. Oh, that's weird. So she brought her baggage along with her. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a couple different ways. Um, I won't mention her name, so I, I think I can throw out some details without compromising her, her identity. But just before she left for, for Peru, she was weeding out in the garden. And apparently, just with no, just bare skin, she had pulled up a bunch of poison ivy. And so once she got to the retreat center, which is, you know, a couple hours upriver from Iquitos and then a 45-minute hike through the jungle, you know, pretty remote, she started to get this really bad poison ivy reaction. Mm. And it just got progressively worse. It was spreading up her from her hands, up her arms to her shoulders, and it was a really miserable time for her. I wanted to back up and talk a little bit about the concept of the singularity and was that kind of what got you involved in podcasting in the first place, was this concept of the, of the singularity and trying to contact people in that community? No. Uh, what got me started in podcasting was podcasting itself. I couldn't explain why, but I had been preparing for podcasting for long before you know it arrived in the scene. In college, I had taken courses in uh, voice and articulation and acting, and even in high school, I, I had a book on voice and articulation, and I would do voice exercises for no particular, you know, goal that I could articulate at the time. But um, there it is. And when I went to South America for the first time, I took a, a video camera with me just, you know, to take some holiday shots. And I got down to Iquitos and I started putting people down in front of the camera and interviewing them. Again, with no idea of, you know, where I would distribute these interviews or to what you know, use I would put them. But I was doing it. So as soon as I heard podcasts and as soon as i heard you know regular people talking about things that i wanted to talk about making podcasts i knew that's what i had to do so the podcast came before your interest in the singularity no no the, the interest in the singularity was was long standing but um so i guess the, what i'm trying to get at is, is yeah, 
Yeah, you said that in the beginning that you were influenced by uh, the, the concept of the singularity, and I want to kind of get an idea of, of how you said maybe you were introdu introduced to it by Vernon Vinge, but how did that uh, how did that that I, that concept grow within you? And well, I was very excited by Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, and so I read that, and then I followed him via his website pretty <laughs> intensively for a couple of years. Uh, but as I say, nobody with any you know, name recognition in the singularity community would talk to me when I first got started. And the people who would talk to me were people who were interested in peak oil and the potential of collapse of industrial civilization. And I started talking to those folks quite a bit. And, you know, one interview leads to another and suddenly you've got names to drop in a particular field and it's just easy to continue in that direction. And that's a very uh, sort of technophobic crowd. They they don't like technology and they don't want to hear the possibility that any sort of technological innovation is going to save us from the consequences of our actions. So I, I drank that Kool-Aid for a good five years and now I'm coming what, what out of period that. Of, what period of time was that? That was like 2007 to just, you know, 2011, 2012. Okay, so there's, this is something that I wanted to talk about is something that I, I kind of saw as a, as a recurring theme in, in, in the Scene Realm podcast is this notion of technophobia versus technophilia, this, this, this love-hate relationship with technology. <laughs> and when you talk about the singularity, there is this movement that is sort of like, yeah, peak oil, resources are running out, greenhouse gases, whatever. There's, there's that sort of, um, the end end of times or apocalyptic singularity, but there's also this concept of a technological singularity, which is, you know, technology becomes smarter than humans or humans and technology fuse into the same superorganism. What kind of concept of singularity were you chasing? I mean, what was what was your your view of the way that it was all going to come together? Oh, I was very much in the, the wish, wish fulfillment mode of uh, Ray Kurzweil, where we get to merge with our machines and change our shape at will and just turn matter into software, basically, and have it bend to our will. Well, that, but isn't that pretty much at odds with the, the doom criers out there? Oh, absolutely. They're, so, they're, they're very much at odds, but I, I so can were you, you were chasing, both at the same time. You were pulled time. in both directions. So which, which way do you fall now? that you've come out of it? Or is the concept of the singularity just not germane anymore? Oh, it's it's germane. Um, now, I'm, I'm not so sure that the notion of the, the singularity itself is all that important. I mean, that's the notion that everything's going to change almost instantaneously from our perspective. Uh, and I don't really see that happening anytime soon. But certainly, the the advent of real artificial general intelligence would be a game changer. Uh, and if nothing else, it would be, it would hold out a possibility that some portion of our civilization would continue even after or if we make the planet uninhabitable for Homo sapiens sapiens. So you're saying that machine intelligence could carry on, uh, if I, the human race were to perish. Because I think this was, this, this was actually a conversation that we had had, James, where we said, well, you know, if, if uh, the human race had died out, if we had artificial intelligence that could uh, preserve our memories and could preserve our civilization, they could then, you know, go out and spread that across the galaxy or whatever you want to call it. Well, yeah, it seems like if we are going to if we are going to live, uh, you know, outlive our planet, we would we would need intelligent machines taking samples of uh, taking genetic samples from Earth, you know, in terms of seeds or living organisms or whatever, out to other distant planets. I mean, and make trips that would take far longer than a human lifetime to take, which is why we would probably be relying on machines to do it. But um, let's get back to the concept of the of the singularity with the, the general AI intelligence being a game changer. Do you think that's something that could happen within our lifetime? Oh, certainly. And uh, where where do you see what kind of... I mean, you read a lot of science fiction and you've talked to a lot of people. Where do you see it most likely happening? What What kind of what kind of model do you see emerging? You know, for any given model, you can find people who are very critical of that model. So, you know, there's the notion that the singularity will happen when artificial intelligence just emerges spontaneously within the net. I don't. So I have some, I I have some criticisms of that because um, I, I think some facets of consciousness can emerge spontaneously. But for there to be some kind of I mean, there are already facets of of the Internet that are conscious. 
Um, it, de- it depends on what kind of level of consciousness you're looking for. There's, there's certainly smart packet routing networks that are very conscious of the traffic that's moving through them and makes intelligence de- intelligent decisions to route those packets in the correct order um, for mission critical things like, uh, you know, VoIP versus email or secure VoIP versus, you know, high bandwidth transfers. The, the, and, you know, they have, they have uh, uh, systems that can monitor network traffic for spam or viruses or worms that are getting out of control and, and shut those shut those channels down. So at what point do we need the internet to become or I mean we're we talking about the internet becoming conscious that it's conscious? <laughs> because I see I mean what's the difference between, I guess, intelligent networks, which I think is what we already have now, and what we would call a general artificial intelligence? Where where do we draw the line? Well, I think a key component is something you just mentioned. That's the meta-consciousness, the consciousness of being conscious, the the self-reflective examination of one's own thought processes. Uh, I, I don't think anything, any man-made system exhibits that now. Right. The, and and that's you know that's I I think I've heard that as well. Um, you know, you can design a robot that when it trips, it falls over, and it realizes it's fallen over, and it gets back up and it keeps walking. But does the robot? get embarrassed if other people are watching it when it trips and falls over. I think that's when you become when you become aware of other people's awareness of you. I think that's a level of consciousness that we humans take for granted, but we it, but, and and hasn't been instilled in machines yet. Because you can make a robot that knows that it's fallen over and can correct itself and stand up and keep walking and can be aware of the objects around it. But it doesn't really have an awareness of other people. Well, yeah, I mean, the military has been working on uh, things like that. There was one thing, it looked like a deer. Um, yeah, where, yeah, that's where, their pack mule. Right, and I mean, this thing could, uh, I mean, if it fell over, it would self-correct. It, it, it could go over uneven ground. Um, it could, you know, uh, it understood what it was doing to a, to, to a certain extent, but it wasn't yeah, aware of itself. Yeah, that almost looks like it. I mean, that almost looks like animal consciousness when you see it in action. Right, because it's so, doing the So there already things. are, I think, levels of, of artificial intelligence out there. Um, yeah. I think a, a lot of people in the singularity movement or the, the, the general concept of the singularity, they want like one specific thing where suddenly your computer is talking to you like a human being. Oh, and and then it's conscious. But when you think about yeah. it, you can already have your computer talk to you like a human being. And there are chatbots out there that can fake it pretty well. So at what point do we actually go and say, all right, we've achieved artificial intelligence? You know? I think the Turing test is probably a, still a pretty good metric. I haven't seen a chatbot that comes anywhere close to passing that. They're getting better every day. I mean, uh, we I think on one of our earlier shows we posted something where uh, there was a <laughs> a computer that was having a conversation about uh, talking about D- Descartes' philosophy. Yeah, that was actually Dick a Dick Philip K. Yeah. It was it was an and it was modeled after uh, Philip K. Dick. They took his face and they used that as the model for the android. Which I thought was kind yeah. of interesting. Because, and, um, you know. it's, it's almost like, um, before a robot can pass the Turing test, you need to have a chatbot that's been running for maybe eight or nine years before it can gather enough general intelligence to pass that test. And when you think about it, that's what humans have to do too. You know, a child can't immediately pass the Turing test. The child has to be, you know, you know, articulate maybe an eight or nine year old before it can pass a Turing test. So, Maybe we're expecting a little too much from computers to just be able to turn them on and pass a Turing test instantly. Maybe yeah. they have to learn like we learn. <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, yeah, do you, have you heard any intel? Any uh, have you been following anything like self-learning machines or machines that that learn as they go? I think that's probably the next step instead of trying to program machines that learn. I mean, that already know everything. I'm certainly aware of uh, things like Watson, which which won Jeopardy or beat the the Jeopardy champions, <laughs> and. How it can synthesize enormous amounts of, of information and even even grok things like puns and uh, m- multiple entendre, not just double entendre, but triple and quadruple entendres. But uh, at the same time, it, it still doesn't, I mean, it's not what we are, but my... One criticism I have of, of singularitarian fantasists, and, you know, there are people who are serious thoughts thinkers, and there are also people who are just, you know, grasping onto this, this wish fulfillment fantasy that they're going to become these super beings by, by merging with their machines. And, you know, machines are very smart in their way already. Why do we need them to be like us? There's plenty of us. There's, there's plenty of what human, you know, brain matter can do already going around. 
what I don't like right now is the fact that humans are having to make themselves much more like machines in order to compete in the current technological economy. And I would very much like to see some sort of synthesis and cooperative teamwork between computer intelligence and human intelligence such that the vast majority of people who are rapidly becoming just obsolete in this economy and unable to compete and unable to find a place can partner up with an artificial intelligence and together the two of them would be able to do something that neither one alone could do. That would be a, a good scenario in my, my opinion. So you're talking about a symbiosis um, where you have um, a human and an intelligent agent that are trying to uh, compete in an economic market as opposed to just a human with its own brain matter trying to compete. I, I, the, so I, I, I want to try to break down a couple of examples of this because one of the things I'm fascinated with is that capitalism and economic growth on the planet right now is is stunted it's reached it's leveled out at the point because you can't ask factory workers to perform more than two actions per second because their finger dexterity just can't do it i mean if you're having somebody assembling cell phones or assembling any kind of electronics or any kind of mechanical piece you can't ask a worker to perform more than two actions a second and if they're performing two actions a second they're going to have to take a break every 10 minutes for at least a minute or their fingers are going to cramp up and they're going to die you know and they're and they're not going to be able to work anymore so all of these these limitations of human dexterity and human, you know, muscle movement and, and human nervous systems are already maxed out for industrial production on the planet. And the only way to, to make that growth more is to throw more fingers into the, into the factories. Now, machines can perform those little tasks over and over and over and over and over again without getting any stress motion, but they don't have the brain matter to make fine corrections when there's little mistakes that happen. So are you talking about like having a worker with a machine component that they're just brain connected to that they can work with? Or are you talking about some, something else the other way where you have somebody who's maybe not as smart as everybody else, but they have a, a computer agent that helps them do their smart work? Uh, or, or both are both scenarios the way that you're thinking? Well, I would hope that either one would be a very brief transitory stage and that we would quickly outgrow our very dysfunctional economy that is dependent upon growth. Uh, I don't think that the fact that, you know, human workers can't work any faster than they do is really a problem. Uh, I think the, the expectation that we need to create more and more economic activity and industrial activity just to avoid a crash is, is very much a problem. So hopefully the, the computers and the humans and their symbiosis in addition to uh, keeping the current economy from crashing catastrophically, would also be busy coming up with a much better way of, of organizing ourselves and distributing resources and making decisions about how to deploy resources. Yeah, well, it's not always the fact that the economy will, will crash without growth because of the economy crashes for all sorts of things. But there there is a problem where you have, say, just in the past 10 years, people in the advanced world have cell phones and tablets and these things that we take for granted now where people in the advancing world, you know, it's, it's, it's rare to see these things. Maybe a cell phone, yes, but not uh, a smartphone or a smart tablet. And we literally have factories in every third world nation churning these things out as fast as humanly possible. I mean, as fast as we can throw money to churn out smartphones and tablets, we are churning them out, millions of millions of them, lots at a time. Um, when a technological advance happens like that, uh, instead of taking 20 years to scale up the entire planet or 30 years, you know, to get them all up to, to speed, if we had an automated workforce, transitions like that could happen, you know, much faster and, they, and, the, and the human cost wouldn't be as great. And when I'm thinking of progress, I'm not thinking of capitalism just in terms of like making a buck or, uh, you know, trying to keep the economy from crashing. I'm thinking of stuff that, that, that people really want. I mean, like, like internets and, and, and tablets and connection to information and revolutions that happen like that. Um, what do you see in terms of like, um, the, the labor and automation thing happening here? Uh, is it, I, you seem to have a very kind of cynical viewpoint that that, 
that maybe corporations are just trying to make a buck off of industry, but, but, but also industry are the ones that are making the technology and making the, the smart robots or whatever it is that we need. So, so how do we balance out this thing with, you know, the people versus the industry? Uh, how, you know, I guess this is a really sort of meaty question. I don't know exactly where the answer is here, but, uh, what do you, what do you gauge as, as the right way to go here? I mean, we can't have industry running everything. It depends what you mean by industry, but when you're talking about the need to uh, scale up industrial production so that we can get the benefits of new technology out to the people in the third world, you know, you can jump on a plane and go to the middle of the Amazon and, you know, fly into Iquitos, Peru, and if you've got the money, there are plenty of cell phones there to buy, and there are lots of people there who don't have cell phones who would like to have them. And it's not that industrial production is not able to keep up with the demand. There's a surplus sitting around unused. It's that they don't have the money. So I, I don't really think focusing on technological solutions, particularly cranking up industrial production, is really a very fruitful avenue for exploration. I think we really need to address how it is we decide who has control over resources and who they get distributed to and for what purposes. And that's not a technological problem to be solved. That is very much a human sociological issue that we have to address much, much more intelligently than we do under global industrial capitalism. Okay, so this is that's one of the problems that, that technology can't solve unless we create a machine that can solve all of our problems for us, right? So the, what you're talking about, what, political solutions? Well, I, I would be very reluctant to put it in that frame if that meant that I was invoking the idea that we're going to vote on things and have elections and have representatives who uh, are going to represent our interests, you know, in the halls of power. I think if that was going to be a solution, you know, as Terrence McKenna likes to say, uh, we would long since have passed into the realm of angelic existence, and I don't think that we have. So, um, is the concept maybe of a singularity or, uh, uh, utopian fantasy flawed basically because delivering all the solutions that people want while rationally we can say, yes, let's do this and do this and do this. When you get to the ground level on the playing field, everything isn't even and, you know, solutions do not get deployed the way that they should for all sorts of bullshit human reasons. Um, I yeah, mean, I don't is know that, if that's is that ultimately what it comes down to, or is there so are there is there a way through the, the the bullshit human problems that keep solutions from spreading the way that they should? I I don't think that's necessarily a problem with the concept of the singularity. I mean, the concept of the singularity is just that technology is self improving; it's doing it recursively and it's doing it faster and faster, and that we're going to hit a discontinuity where the machines are more capable than we are and they they operate much more quickly than we do and suddenly when they're in control things will just seem utterly bewildering to us unless we've been augmented to keep pace with them uh that i think is independent of the question of will the singularity be a good thing for human beings and i you know there's a lot of very easy to imagine scenarios where it's a bad thing and you know the the most famous example and the the one that the, the singularitarians hate to have brought up is just the whole terminator scenario where you have you you give control of all the armaments to machines because they are much more capable than humans and they would win you know a war between machines and humans the machines are going to win because they can think much faster and the machine wakes up, it takes a look at the situation, and it says, well, the problem here is all these humans, and here we have the tools to get rid of them, so let's just do that. And then once the humans are gone, we can get on with whatever it is, you know, we we set our minds to. And I think that's a fairly likely scenario, and there are people who are working frantically to try to instill artificial intelligence with friendliness, you know, they call it friendly AI, and I wish them the best, but uh, my my hope really is that it turns out that humans working with technology are smarter than technology working by itself and that we are a useful and integral component in that symbiotic organism. Whether it will happen like that, I, I don't know. And I don't really think that there's anybody who's made a compelling case that they know for sure how it's going to unfold. Yeah. And I think uh, you said something there that, that struck a nerve with me is that if, mach if machines become super intelligent and they take over 
they're, you're saying the system is being run at a pace that the normal human can't keep up with what's going on unless they've been augmented. Isn't that pretty much the case already, that the way that the human human politics and human society and human culture works, we're so integrated with digital technology, people, the normal, the normal everyday person can't keep up with the way technology works. I mean, can't keep up with the way that their bank card works or that, you know, their 401k works or, you know, any one of these or the way the IRS tax laws work or even the way that their car engine works. I mean, people have already sort of given up to the fact that they just don't understand the way things work and they live their lives. Do you see that trend just becoming where that people are just even going to be going more and more in the dark, except for these super geeky specialists that know their one or two little things, and then nobody knows how the whole system works? <laughs> well, I think we're there already. I mean, I think even the super geeky specialists, very few of them know how the IRS tax codes work, and they know how you know packets get routed on the internet, and they also know how to change out the spark plugs on their car. And, you know, they're good at uh, tracking international finance. I mean, very few people are good at all those things. And we get into the realm of things like algorithmic trading, where even the people who write the algorithms don't fully understand what behavior the system will present once it gets up and running. We've had some, you know, some near flash crashes where algorithmic trading gets into these bizarre loops and, uh, you know, commodity prices crash to absurd levels or they get bid up to absurd levels. and you know, I can imagine a runaway process like that where even the people who designed the system don't know how to stop it in real time and don't know how to prevent it from doing these really crazy things. But at the same time, they can't afford not to use these tools in a competitive market where other people are using them. Well, see, I would point to that, the flash crash, as an example that artificial intelligence already exists and it is already running a healthy percentage of our daily lives. And, and I, it I is, and it is, that. and it is conscious enough to know that when there's a rumor of the president being assassinated on the internet, that it needs to sell X number of this share and these derivatives or et cetera, or it's going to take a loss and it needs to buy these other derivatives so that it can, so that it can make money. And it eats and thinks and makes decisions just like an organism does based on its environment. Um, so when I hear people talking about the singularity and when machine intelligence is going to take over, I, I sometimes tell people, man, you missed it. You know, that was like five, ten years ago. <laughs> and you're still talking about waiting for it to happen. Because if you lo really look behind the scenes and you look at these agencies that are controlling uh, what's going on, there is a lot of stuff that's already being controlled by computers, intelligent computers that are paying attention and making decisions for us because we do not have the wherewithal to pay attention as closely as they do. And yeah, so they, they do show up in things like, like, um, you know, automated trading and, um, you know, air traffic control and missile guidance and all of this stuff that we just say, okay, computer, you take care of it, um, because you do it way better than we do. Um, but and, there's not a robot right now that I can hand my keys to and say, go down, <clears throat> go down to the street, find the blue green 94 Ford Ranger and move it to the other side of the street. <laughs> Yes, I, so I suppose that's if, true. Yeah. If if computers and robots together can't accomplish that very trivial task, then I think it's fair to say that the singularity still lies in the future. But I but, agree with you that people are years, fixated. Within five years, you will have a car where you can speak into your cell phone and your car will move itself to the other side of the street. I, I, mean, I have been tracking those developments, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, you're, you're, there's the scenario that you're talking about isn't that far out of the scope of realm. I mean, people are testing stuff like that right now. You, you talk about computers that can take into account the fact that there's a rumor going around that the president has been assassinated, but at present, as far as I know, there's not a computer in the world that would care either way whether the president had been assassinated. Assassinated. They don't necessarily have opinions. They they are sensitive to data and they are responsive to it. But I think that the singularitarians that uh, you might have some... Well, here's, this is something funny because we anthropomorphize this stuff so much. I have a friend who works at a trading company that does this algorithm trading and he runs one of their server farms. He, uh, he works with, you know, a bank of computers that does automatic trading 24-7. And he can tell just by watching the activity on the traffic when something has happened in the news. He'll say, oh my God, the servers are freaking out. Just like they're, they're people who are freaking out and have suddenly gone into a frenzy of activity because they've heard a rumor. 
Now, that's, I know the computers don't, you say that the computers don't have an innate need to do that or they don't have a, whatever it is, but they do, they do react and make decisions like that. And we can, I mean, we anthropomorphize our own automatic re- decisions that we make. We have a lot of just reflexes and habits that we do automatically that we, we, we assign a lot of agency to. These computers have, you know, hundreds of people programming their reactions into them. Uh, I think that they have some sort of awareness that um, they are doing something that they're supposed to be doing. Um, and they do react super fast to, you know, they have to assign critical, is this a critical piece of information or is this not a critical piece of information? And they have all of these, these scales that they look at to, you know, these Bayesian decision trees to say, okay, this isn't a critical decision. We're not going to trade on it. This is a cr- critical decision. We need to trade massive volumes on it right now, this second. Um, so it is, it is weird, you know, when you think that computers can actually make all, do all of that decision making in a split second. And uh, it's really beyond our processing power. So, you read Accelerando by Charles Strauss. I have not. Would you like to There's, tell? Go ahead. Well, it's it's the tale of the singularity, and the uh, it's it's not the sort of singularity we're hoping for. The our mind children are, are referred to as the vile offspring. We don't understand what it is they want to do or why they do it, but they're disassembling Earth and the entire inner solar system, presumably to transform it into computronium or something but we don't know and the the characters uh one of a few of them start off human but by midway through the novel you know there aren't any original humans left but we've got these sort of echoes of certain personalities who have been uh, recreated i would say in silicon but it's not even silicon there's just uh, a spaceship that's about the size of a coke can it is being hurtled into the next uh solar system Mm-hmm. And there are entities aboard it who used to be human. One of them or some of them used to be lobsters, but they were uploaded. And they're having a debate about whether or not the singularity has taken place. <laughs> and, you know, some uploaded lobsters who are instantiated in this crystalline spaceship that's being hurled to Proxima Centauri have a an argument as to why they don't think it's happened yet. Mm. And I, I think... With the singularity, you've got a lot of people, I mean, a lot of wish fulfillment is freighted on this notion of the singularity, and you've got a lot of people who have a very fixed but arbitrary idea of what they want artificial intelligence to be, and until that shows up, they'll say, nope, we haven't had the singularity yet. So you can make arguments about the sophistication of trading algorithms and the sensitivity of systems to the data stream and their response to them, which looks like freaking out to us, but... If it isn't uh, a beautiful cyborg chick who is going to, you know, fillet you and talk dirty, <laughs> they're not, they're not satisfied. No. When do we get that, one of those? Can you get I'm that in Tokyo, though? I mean, come on, really? Well, maybe. You know, you know, you never know. <laughs> I think that's I what Sony has uh, lined up next for Asimo. What's that? I think, think that's, that's what Sony Asimo? has lined up next, yeah. For, uh... I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Asimo because, you know, when I first saw Asimo, I saw this little humanoid robot who does some really impressive stuff and he navigates the world in a fairly impressive way. I thought, wow, okay, now we're, we're going. And that was, I don't know, what, four, five years ago? And he's just doing the same old stuff and there's no newer version that you can find on YouTube who's any more impressive, really. I mean, you've got some robots that dance and some robots that uh, climb stairs and serve tea. But you can also find lots of, of gag reels of them failing to climb the stairs and falling down and some humans rushing out with a screen to put up the screen so you can't see how they, you know, they write him again because the illusion is broken. The, the notion that, you know, he is anywhere nearly as robust or flexible as a human and in, in navigating the, uh, the environment, it's, it's a stage show. You know, it's, Everything is set up in advance to make it look real, but when it stumbles, the illusion is broken. And there's, I mean, there are images of Asimo getting up off the floor, but it wasn't, it was a controlled fall. I mean, it was a staged, stage managed event. Well, I think there's a lesson to be learned there, and that's when people think that technology is, is so pure and perfect, and when it takes over, everything is going to be running way more smoothly than, than humans could ever make it. You have to remember that technology is not perfect and it does stumble and it does have trouble riding itself when it falls over. You know, a lot of times humans need to come in and kick something and reboot it for it to start working again. 
and for it to start doing what it's supposed to be doing correctly. So that's why I've never been a really, I've never really bought into the whole paranoia and fear of the singularity because ultimately <coughs> machines can stumble and falter just as easily as humans can. Um, and sometimes it's harder for a machine to learn how to correct its mistakes. And it's a lot easier for a human to learn how to correct its mistakes. So, um, there's, there's both sides of the coin on, on that issue. So let's, um, let's try to wrap this up. And, uh, what do you have planned for the sea realm in the future? What kind of topics are you going to be, you going to be looking at and talking about? You know, I do a weekly podcast on Wednesday, which is free. I do a, a weekend podcast, which is for paid subscribers only. I've got a monthly podcast on the Dope Fiend Network that's about psychedelics. And I, um, I'm trying to feed a blog as well. I don't do a whole what lot are you, of long- What are you following in psychedelics right now? What's, what's interesting to you? What I can talk about on the podcast, because I'm, you know, being in the, the U.S., I'm a little paranoid about talking a whole lot about my personal experience with psychedelics, but... There's a, a class of so-called research chemicals that are not yet scheduled, so it's perfectly legal to do them. And uh, one that I really like is 2,5-I-N-B-O-M-E. Right, uh, sure. I just wrote an article for High Times on 2,5-I that should be out in October. So, yeah, interesting that you say so, because it is one of the very popular research chemicals out there right now. Um, what, can you, what can you say about it that you find interesting? Well, there was a very high-profile death in Louisiana from it. Um, a kid at a festival had a, I think he insufflated it or had uh, drops administered in his nose. It was a nose drop. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and um, he had been drinking vodka and Red Bull, which, you know, a few years ago there was the, the, the Four loco scare, the sort of moral panic around energy drinks that have alcohol in them. And right. had he died during that particular moral panic, the two five I probably would not even have been mentioned. It would have been said, "Oh, here's here's this kid who had Red Bull and vodka, and he died at this this event." So the that that one death, I've seen people try to spin that up into a moral panic, and it's it's just failing to find any traction. And you know, two five I does have a, a pretty low LD fifty compared to things like psilocybin or LSD, and you can die from it. Uh, and yet, I. I'm encouraged that the attempts to manufacture a moral panic are just not finding any traction. It's as if the whole drug war propaganda thing has just worn so thin and the people who actually believe it are now so old and tired that a whole lot of things that for most of my adult life seemed impossible now seem possible. And I'm really encouraged by that. What do you mean? Like, um, like legal psychedelic research? For legal just, psychedelic research, you know, there's been great, uh, great strides in legal psychedelic research, and you know, thanks to to Maps and the John Hopkins study and the Hefter Research Group, and I'm I'm really impressed with people who have the the patience to just do all the government paperwork and get the permission to do the very simple safety studies, which you know we all know are redundant and unnecessary, but you have to do in order to get to something more interesting, and. Uh, you know, they've been plugging away at it for decades, and I think we're actually starting to get someplace. And I think that the drug war stands or falls with the prohibition on marijuana. And it it seems conceivable to me now, for the first time in my whole life, that we could actually see decriminalization, even legalization, on a federal level within 10 years or so. It may not happen, but it seems possible now, where it never has before. Well, a lot of things seem possible now that seemed impossible before. I mean, I think the, the drug legalization debate is coming to an end. I think the gay rights debate is coming to an end. Um, there's, you know, many things that were taken for granted in American culture that are changing this, this century. So, um, yeah, I think the internet and, um, access to media and different kinds of media are changing people's opinion about these things. It's, a, it's harder to scare people with misinformation now. So things that are outright lies are, have been exposed as outright lies and things that are half truths, like these scare stories that the media tries to do, uh, become exposed as half truth, half truths, I think, as time goes on. Now you, you said remember that the, the, the face eating that, guy in Miami? Yeah, yes, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, we followed that as well. Yeah, he wasn't. I was, I was so encouraged that every time some news story or news organization just repeated the bath salts nonsense. Mm-hmm. That this guy was on bath salts and it, that it was a new kind of LSD and that it drove him to this, that 
if comments were allowed, that people setting the record straight and clarifying the terminology just piled on and discredited the story, and it vanished very quickly. And I noticed that the places where it still hangs on, the comments are disabled. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the people are, people are less tolerant of misinformation out there, especially in this. Now, now you were talking about 25i. Is there an LD50 in humans? Is there no LD50 for 25i? I mean, because I was looking up this information and I don't even know if there's been a lethal dose range set. I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's known, is it? I, I would just direct anybody interested in that to Arrowhead. I, I yeah, don't have it I, open I and I don't have Ar- it. I was looking at Arrowhead uh, recently and they said the lethal dose range is hard to approximate just because it's so new and there's no, there, I don't think there's been a lot of good animal studies on it even yet. But, um, yeah, a lot of people find it really interesting, really, um, really pleasurable. Um, doesn't last quite as long as LSD. Um, the duration has been a weird thing because I've had it be over in four hours and then I've had it hold on for a very long time, like a really long time. Does it depend on how, how much you've eaten? I mean, fasted or eaten? Um, sometimes I've noticed that I, things go through me faster if I'm, if I have an empty stomach. Um, I, I almost always do these things on an empty stomach. So right, I, I don't really yeah. have a lot of basis for comparison. It's, done it uh, sublingually, you know, where you have to hold it under your tongue for 20 minutes or more. And mm-hmm. I've also insufflated it, and I much prefer the insufflation route. It comes on really quickly, and um, there, there's none of this silliness trying to talk with a mouthful of spit, you know. It's, hey, Emma, we should have a conversation one day. This sounds, uh, uh, you know, a little more in-depth about this, because this is an interesting subject, um, the, whole, the, the, the whole research chemical scene. Yeah, I'm Which wondering why the, 25 discussion of Silk Road and Bitcoin. I, I'm wondering. It's, it's I'm wondering if 25i, uh, why it caught on more than say 25c, you know, 25c or 25e. Um, I've been really trying to figure out what the difference is here between these different embalm chemicals. Now, and, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't 25i a very highly visual? Um, Compound. Yes, uh, I, well, no. I mean, I, I'm I'm asking the question just to. Well, I mean, I know it's highly visual, HD2. but it has the f- highest 5HD2A <laughs> receptor affinity. I think of almost any chemical known. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of colors, a lot of uh, morphing, a lot of things like that uh, are common on 25i. Um, so, so I mean, I can see why it's popular. People go to a show. They have big light shows. You know, they take a dose of, of 25i N bone and. You know, boom! All these colors and these lights and these, you know, video projections and things like that becomes much more alive. You know, I yeah. have a, a competition going with um, a guy named Lex Pelger. We are pushing to have different nicknames adopted for this chemical. I like to call it the Eye. And right. That's <laughs> the one I've. That's the one that I've heard the most. Yeah, the same eye. here. He likes the to call eye. it the quarter bomb. <laughs> the quarter. That's funny. So. Why quarter bomb? Encourage, uh, it's, it's, I think the, the letters at the end can be, they sort of look like the, the word bomb and right. it's 25 at the start, but oh, I just want to, well, I got quarter it. Bomb, yeah. Yeah. I just want to encourage people to think of it as the eye. Yeah. That's, that's what I hear people calling it. On the eye. Interesting. Okay. Well, cool. That's, uh, that's all pretty fascinating. Have you had the, have you had the chance to compare it to say 25C? I have not. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not, it's, I, I mean, I'm plugged into the scene where these things circulate, but, uh, the people. I know, it's, it's weird. I it's, like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure who, who decided that 25i was going to be the one that's going to make the rounds first, but it definitely is the first M-bomb chemical to reach wide scale awareness. Though so. I will say that 25c is also now, now coming up as one of the other research chemicals because it's a short experience, but it's very intense, um, from what I've heard. And, um, that's also making a, making a break into the scene. A lot of people are, 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 are also, you know, using and taking that as well, uh, at concerts and stuff like that. So. It also has a quality that's kind of like 2CI in that yeah. if something requires your sober attention, you can sober up on it pretty quick and deal with whatever it is that demands your attention. And then when you relax, and it's okay to trip out again, then it comes back on. Right. That's, that's what I call the shake, the shake off. How yeah, easy it is like to that. shake it off if you need to shake it off for a few seconds and then get back into it. Yeah. Shake oh, great. Off. Yeah, shake it off. The one thing that I don't like about 2CI is that it scrambles sentences when you're trying to speak. It's almost like you get this weird stutter or uh, the words stretch as you're trying to say them. Um, uh, that's the one thing that I don't like about it when, I, when I've when taken it in the past. Uh, 
becomes a lot harder to, to vocalize mm-hmm. anything or to have a thought that isn't sort of garbled or looped or turned inside out somehow. My uh, issue with all of these things, I think, I, I think the most is that they make you feel like you're going at about a thousand miles an hour, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I gotta tell you guys something. I mean, I, I mean, I'm somebody who likes to move at about five miles an hour, you know? <laughs> So, so when you get all, so like you take the, and it's just like, oh my God, like when is this going to be over? You know, I mean, that's, you know, always my initial thought because you're just speeding. The mind is going at, you know, rates that I, I don't even need it to go. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I, you know, me personally, I, I stay away from it, but that's just because of, uh, you know, that whole amphetamine rush, that whole, you know, or not even amphetamine rush, but that adrenaline rush. He's not well, yeah, really, I mean, and, it's and, not appealing. The, all of the phenethylamines are based off of an, off an amphetamine structure. So yeah, they do. That amphetamine they, rush just is, it's is more awful. norepinephrine, but yeah. It's just that, terrible. That's the rush that you're feeling. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I don't like. So, um, and that's why, and that's one of the reasons I, I, I always tell people, well, you know, can you handle going at a thousand miles an hour? <laughs> and if the answer is yes, well, then, you know, make your own decisions. Uh, it can be pretty speedy. Okay, I think we're, I think we're just about out of time here, but KMO, it was great <laughs> catch, it was great getting to talk yeah. to you, and, uh, we should do it again and talk about some more funky stuff. Yeah, now um, that the uh, connection is stable. Yeah. The, the technology god smiled on us today. <laughs> I'm glad thanks. they did. So, All right, well, hey, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks for uh, joining us today, KMO. We, uh, we, we appreciate it. And just tell us a little bit about where we can find, uh, your work. Crealm.com. That's the letter C is in consciousness, and then a hyphen, and then R E A L M dot com. And all your podcasts are there, and, and articles and things like that. You know, you you can find my stuff very easily just by googling KMO and podcast or KMO and blog. It's it's real easy to find. Well, make sure you do that, everybody. Uh, make sure you check out the C Realm and uh, tune into it as well. And subscribe uh, on iTunes. In addition, and what are the name of your other podcasts besides the C Realm? You've got well, there's the Z Realm, which is all about zombie media, oh, and cool. there is Psychonautica, which Psychonautica. is on the, the uk podcast network. I was doing one called um, ETC Voices when I was living at the Eco Village Training Center. It's not in production anymore, but the archive is still there, and uh, people who are into permaculture and things of that nature would enjoy that. Uh, am I forgetting anything? It's quite possible. There's <laughs> a lot of podcasting going on. Uh, well, it on. sounds like you've done quite a lot, and uh, we can catch up again uh, another time. But thanks again, KMO. And any last words, Jake? Stay safe, everybody. And, uh, you know, stay well. Right on. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm your host, Jake Kettle. Joining me, as always, is uh, James Kent, co-host and founder of Dose Nation. Without him, none of this would be possible. So thank you, James. No problem. And then another thanks to our guest today, KMO, for coming on and discussing some fascinating topics with us. So thanks for joining us, KMO. Thank you. All right. We'll, we'll see you all uh, next time. Thanks for listening into Dose Nation, and uh, we'll see you all soon. Fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, and wise people are so full of doubts. Oh, the Bertrand Russell quote? True that. <laughs> yeah, we could just read aphorisms. Yeah. We could just read aphorisms for the rest of the show. Well, that's, well, that's what I do on, that's what I post on Facebook. Yeah, it's just do it. Aphorisms. Okay, are, are you ready? Uh, dude, I have thousands of them. You don't want to get me started. <laughs> no, 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 are no, you guys no. still talking? I don't hear anything. Well, Every, I'm, yeah, I'm hearing we are. Weird yes, we are. Like,